There was a question here, Kirk, that said, uh, why does your voice always go up to the end of a sentence? <laughs> as, as if you're asking a question when, in fact, you're making a statement. Does it? Oh, that's amazing. Like, um, that's meant to be a feature of um, teenage girls who've been educated in Catholic schools in Australian um, English. English. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I, do I do it? Am I doing it too? I, I actually think you don't do it, but uh, there are, I have experienced it in Australia. A, a, Australian comedians actually will parody that. Yeah. 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 Yep. So you're not offended by that no. bit of banter. Good. Um, can you recommend any useful books on Ecclesiastes? Yep. That, that's actually a harder question than it sounds. Um, because of the debates about what does this Hevel word, this vapour, meaningless, what, you know, the, the, the debates about that um, and the debates about whether or not the writer's kind of losing his way when he goes building gardens and sleeping, like, you know, some people think he's got a harem or, to, you know, he's becoming sexually immoral and he's getting drunk and so on. So there's those debates about that. So, um, but probably at the moment the commentary that I most like is one by Ian Proven, and it's published in the NIV application commentary series. Is that, do you know that series in the UK? Yeah, NIV application. So Ian Proven. That said, in the last six months, um, a, two or three new commentaries on Ecclesiastes have come out, which I've bought but haven't read yet. So I, I reckon if you gave me six months, I'd have a few more. But Ian Proven. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And the, the question goes on to ask, do you have any plans to write up your own notes into a book? Well, um, the commentary series that got me to do Isaiah have opened up that conversation, um, but I've also got PhD pressure with work. Yeah, so okay. how many things can you do? So yeah. we'll see. Okay, well, yeah. we'll certainly look out for it if you do get to do it. Yeah. It would be excellent. Um, and in a more general question, what would be your top tips for reading wisdom literature? Oh, wow. Top tips for reading wisdom literature. Um, I think to to realise that it, it's literature that's largely coming out of meditation on creation, so that it's it does it's going to have that timeless um, relevance to all human beings. That sort of feel, um, and to realise too that it's a style of writing that seems deliberately not to want to, to make its meaning um, blatantly obvious in the first reading. So um, when, you, when you say a proverb, it's, it's because you've distilled lots and lots of situations in your mind and lots of reflection, and then you've cleverly brought that down to just a few words. So to, to respect that form of communicating, you really have to let Proverbs just sit with you. I mean, that, the other, when we were reading Ecclesiastes, let me see if I can, um, when we had one of the longer readings, there was a, a little bit there and I thought, what on earth does that mean? Um, yes, if a snake bites before it is charmed, there is no profit for the charmer. Um, you know, it, like that, it's not instantly obvious what I should rush out and do in response to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Especially when St. Patrick got rid of them all. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's interesting that it's got the word profit in it. So it, it, I'm arguing that the question of gain is major for the book of Ecclesiastes. And here's this random little proverb about profit. And in what situations will you or won't you profit? Um, so I was lying awake in bed thinking, maybe if, maybe if you can't tame the snake and then it goes and bites someone, then you don't get paid anything. But that showed you that you didn't have mastery over creation. And you know, it's actually, maybe it is actually tying into all of those big themes of the book. But I had to lie awake in bed and think about it. And I think that's wisdom literature. It's, it's very crafted. It's the result of years and years of reflection on life. And so don't rush it. And don't be stressed if on first reading it doesn't make sense. In fact, enjoy that. Even if it takes you years to puzzle out a particular proverb, well, great. Hmm. Perhaps I Great. Great. (laughs) 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 That's great. Um, Perhaps I could tease that out. Uh, Some people, uh, a guy called Marvin Wilson has written a book, Abraham, Our Father, and he talks about how, as Western Christians, we think in a way that's quite different to the Hebrew worldview. Mm-hmm. Could, can you comment just a few mm. things on that, if that might be helpful? Because often we come to things in probably quite a Pauline yes. way, thinking there'll be a logical argument yeah, here. So, it'll be so linear. last night, that sandwich structure, I mean, it's called a chiastic structure. Um, you know, I think we're used to reading that, okay, I'm going to introduce my argument and then I'm going to have three points and then I'm going to come to a conclusion and, it, and the argument will be linear. I don't think a lot of Hebrew literature is like that at all. It's more circular or it's, I'm going to introduce an idea and I'll revisit it over here and then... Um, so that's, that's good to know, I think, in reading the literature to not insist that it follows your conventions. Um, and I think, too, um, there's something about the Hebrew language, um, just about, well, as a basic rule, all the verbs in Hebrew are just, just have three letters in them. And if you then do the maths in that, then if every verb has three letters and you've got 22 letters in your alphabet, um, they're all sort of going to look a bit alike um, and sound a bit alike. And so it becomes the kind of language where it's really easy to make puns and so often the joy of, the, of reading in Hebrew is that you're not exactly sure, oh, what, you know, what exact word did, was he trying to get me to think of there? Because it, if I said it like, there's, you know, there's sort of certain sounds that are exactly the same, you know, like in English as well, there, you know, it's easy to get words to be spelt differently but sound the same. You can do all that kind of playfulness in, when you write in Hebrew. And so again, it's, it's that the meaning, there may actually be two meanings sitting within a verse. So you know how I've been playing around with, hey, it's like vapour, but sometimes I've had to say, it's like vapour, that is, it disappears overnight. Or, hey, it's like vapour, that is, you can't quite capture it, you can't quite get it. But they're both vapour ideas, but in English, we've got to tack a whole lot more words around that to show they're different nuances of vapour. And um, so I think just being comfortable with... This is a, this is a very artistic language and, so, and, and an artistic kind of culture. Some people think too, because um, Jewish people weren't allowed to make, art, make statues of God, the whole visual arts aren't really developed for them as a community. 
and that means that the literary arts are particularly where they put their energy. So the, the Bible that we're holding in our hand is this incredible masterpiece of literature and to, just, and to let it be that, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Yep. Hmm. Okay, um, just on that in regards to the word meaningless, uh, why do the translators use the word meaningless when hmm. it's just wrong? Unless you know the true sense of the word, you won't get the gist of the whole book. Yes. Are different versions better here or are different methods of translation better for biblical literary genres? Yeah. Um, my best take on this is that um, I think the reason we have meaningless in our, a lot of our translations today or even vanity is historical. That is, um, the Hebrew Bible chose this kind of, um, I think, interesting, vague word, but then it, had, it got translated into Greek at some point. And if, I mean, if you know a little bit about Greek culture, it tends to more have a dualistic view of reality that things of the spirit are of value, but that things of the flesh are not so valuable. And so when it's trying to capture the Hebrew word, it, it came up with a word that was a bit more like frustration and a slightly more negative word. Now, in the New Testament, Paul talks about that the creation was subject to frustration. That's the word that was chosen. And, you know, that sort of fits, doesn't it? Because things don't last and things are transient. That can be frustrating. So that's one nuance of it, but it's not the only one. But it, it got turned into this Greek translation, which then influenced the early Christians who were translating into Latin, who went to Vanitas which then influenced the King James translators who went into English as vanity, which is kind of when you're doing something and it for no real purpose, purposelessness. And then vanity has become a bit of an archaic word, although the ESV has re-grabbed re at it. Um, and so the NIV has gone with meaningless. So I think a trajectory was set by those translations. And, uh, um, but in the last 20, 30 years, people have tried to just sort of try and sort of come at, come at the evidence in a fresh way and have noticed, you know, especially, you know, youth and vigour are meaningless or enjoy life with your, li what, with your wife or your meaningless days. For years people have said, huh, that doesn't make sense and so now we're beginning to see a way out of that. But it's a, it's a darn nuisance, isn't it? Because like, you really, you, re you want the translation in English sitting on your lap to not muck you around. Mm. And... 99.9% .9 of the time it doesn't muck you around. Hmm. Yeah. And if you could translate it, if you were on a translation committee, what would yeah. you do with um, the word aval? I, I think I'd leave it as a metaphor. So I think I'd just say I'd on a word like mist or vapour, something like that, mm -hmm. because then that, that leaves it up to the reader to still turn it into an adjective, like mist, oh, that is transient, or mist, oh, that is mm. enigmatic, or that is fleeting, or... Yeah. yeah, okay, that's helpful. Yeah. Um, who do you believe wrote Ecclesiastes? Was it Solomon? Mm. Uh, do you believe the last section chapter of chapter 12 was written by a different author? Yeah. If so, how does this affect our understanding of the book? Yeah, they're, they're really good questions. Uh, the short answer is I don't know who wrote Ecclesiastes. That's the short answer. But now let me carry on. <laughs> um, I, it's fascinating that it begins with the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, if Solomon had written it, he could have said Solomon, but he's 
that that word's not there, but the son of David, king in Jerusalem, who, who teaches wisdom, well, that's got to be Solomon, hasn't it? So if, if I get to heaven and find out that Solomon wrote it, well and good, that's fine. Um, something that commentators have noticed is, um, did you pick up, there's that little, there's a verse in it about, do not speak badly about the king because a little bird will carry your words and so on, that sort of thing. Um, people have looked at that and thought, that seems to have the point of view of somebody who isn't the king and who's a bit worried about the king. And there are other verses about if you make a vow to the king, be careful to fulfil it. Or um, in chapter 4, there's stuff about how political leaders can become corrupt because they take bribes and so on. So some people have thought there's enough, there's enough verses in it that seem to be written by somebody who isn't the king and the person who, the, the, you know, the authorship claim at the beginning doesn't come out explicitly and say Solomon. So on the strength of that evidence, um, what some people are saying is that the book wants to say, I am wisdom literature, and a good, quick, shorthand way of saying that to a, in the Jewish community is to say this is a Solomon-type book, so you'd use that sort of way of starting it. Also, if you really wanted to test whether you can gain anything, then you have to be very rich to sort of test that theory. So um, I, what I reckon happens is that the person says, I want you to imagine that I'm Solomon so that there's no barrier for me to test my theory as to whether there is, it's possible to generate gain in this creation. So come with me on the journey as though I'm Solomon. So as Solomon, I'm now going to build this and do this and do this. And blah, but I'm going to find that it's fleeting but then once that kind of thought experiment is over, it's not so important that you keep thinking that I'm Solomon. And so that starts to drop away. So that's my own take on it, that somebody else wrote it and they borrowed the persona of Solomon for a time. Now, there'd be people who'd think, oh, that, you can't, that's all very literary and um, it's like you're studying literature at university. That's not like how you study the Bible. Um, you know, if the Bible says that Solomon wrote it, Solomon wrote it. The Bible's not going to trick us in any way. And, uh, and I can completely relate to that. I guess over the years I've come to the view that God's sovereignty is so big that he, the Holy Spirit is sovereign over literary forms and complex ways that literature gets written and so on. So I don't have any concerns that this isn't scripture because it might, might have been written by somebody pretending Pretending is not the right word, is it? But, you know, a clever writer who can take on the persona of somebody else, that the Holy Spirit can be at, at work in all of that in a way that still makes this authoritative scripture in which we hear the voice of God. Thank you. Um, oh, sorry, there was stuff about yeah. the end. Uh, um, yes, the end. Do you believe the last yeah. section was written I mean, by the, a different author? The book does have... At the beginning and end, the teacher is talked about in the third person and then for the bulk of the book, he becomes I. So it's sensible enough to think that there's this book that's written by somebody and then somebody writes an somebody else writes an introduction and a conclusion to it. And we do that in religious um, communities all the time. So, you know, a great minister or lecturer dies and somebody publishes their writings and writes an introduction for you and maybe at the end a little, um, little brief summary of the, the last 10 years of their life and what happened or something. So that could be what happened with the book of Ecclesiastes.
Yeah. And, I, I, and that God inspired mm. both the, the I bits mm. and then the third person bits. Mm. Yeah. I don't know, I haven't thought too much about this. I wonder, is it also similar to Deuteronomy 34, the last bit, where, where it describes Moses' death? Yeah, so, so if Moses wrote Deuteronomy... He can't have written up his own death, yeah. you know, I think. Yeah. So someone yeah. probably wrote that last wee section. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, um, could you give us some of your wisdom on Solomon's life itself and how do you think he ended up before God in the end? Yeah, I, um, Solomon is a really complex character. Um, I think it's Graham Goldsworthy says that Solomon is both kind of you know the pinnacle of the covenant history of Israel, but also the architect of the whole demise of Israel. I sort of think of him as this figure that you can stand on one side of a mountain and say, "Well, where was it all going? Well, it was all going to Solomon when we'd have a kingdom and a glorious land, and the nations would stream to us for wisdom, and it's all fantastic." Or you can stand on the other side of the mountain where you've got the exile at your feet, and you look up and you think, "Where did this exile come from?" And you look up and the first thing you see up the top there is Solomon and his many wives and his idolatry. And you think, ah, that's where it all came from. So I I think like any politician, Solomon's both this hero and this disaster. Um, I think the writer of One Kings is very clever in the portrayal of Solomon. And um, whenever there's a really positive um, paragraph or two about all that he achieved, He'll then just drop in a little sentence or comment that makes you think, uh-oh, this guy's not all that he seems. So I, in the end, I tend to think Solomon, of Solomon in more negative terms. And I think I've come to the view that Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs are in some ways reflecting on him and saying um, he didn't get it quite right. So Solomon built a lot and achieved a lot and was, in a sense, gained focused but that really wasn't where he should have been and I think Song of Songs is saying you know you could have you could sleep with a thousand women like Solomon or you could sleep with one woman like what's going on in this book and I think it's a Solomon book but it's kind of in a way um, having a go at his sexuality rather than applauding it but anyway that's a that's another at the castle sure (laughs) yeah but I see what you're saying in both cases if you don't, as some might not go for Solomon as the author, at least it's coming out of Solomon's life, wisdom, uh, way of living, yeah. a, a reflection on it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, do you think that Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen to 14 is the summary of the whole book? Yeah, that's a, that is a really good and quite a hard question. Um, I think its language is different. I think fear God and keep his commandments is more Deuteronomy language. So, um, see if I can think of a good analogy. Okay, it's like somebody writes this crazy book called Notes from the Tilter World, which is a completely wacky and crazy book. And so the compere has to stand up and say, oh, a tilter world is this, and he's really meaning the earth, and he's really writing about the doctrine of creation. So because he's highly artistic and creative in his use of language, and as an epilogue writer had to come along and say, I'll just interpret that for you. So, the writer of Ecclesiastes is creative and fresh in how he articulates the faith of Israel, and someone at the end says, you know, that was a bit fresh and creative, but did you pick up that he really was just saying, fear God and keep his commandments? He actually didn't say that, he said, rejoice and remember, 
But if you think about that long enough, it really is pretty close to the ergodic experience. So I think it's different, but I think it's saying, hey, we're in the same family here. So you can say, I live on the tilter wall, if you're feeling fresh and creative. Or you can be Johnny and come along and say, he means the earth, and it's rotating around the sun. So you're saying I'm not creative. Yeah, that's <laughs> And I'm saying, when I'm saying the writer of Ecclesiastes 12 is not very creative either. So <laughs> terrible, terrible. Okay. Um, uh, in relation to Ecclesiastes and Christ, mm. so... Uh, this weekend, you didn't talk a lot. Mm, you did mm. talk about Jesus, but you didn't mm. talk a lot about Jesus and yes. how Ecclesiastes might yep. relate to Jesus. Can you unpack yep. yes. what the relationship um, is there? Yep. Uh, oh, how much to say? Uh, I, I've given talks like these in Sydney, and um, they weren't brilliantly received in some quarters because of that. Like in, Part of Sydney... Uh, theology is that you've always got to be have a lot to say about Christ from the Old Testament. And I love that. I really love it because it shows the consistency of God. It gives Christ great glory. Um, so that's all fantastic. But I, I think in Sydney we've, we've sort of like all these good ideas. We, we're overdoing it a bit at the moment. So I deliberately in these talks kept Christ kind of in a modest kind of way but what I was trying to say in this is that um, there are lots of things we know about Christ and he, he's, glor- he's, a, he's a gloriously rich person. And the aspect of him that I really wanted us to come away with was that he is a wise teacher, which is really just another way of saying he is our Lord. But one of the ways that he exercises his lordship over us is in teaching us how to live wisely. So what I just tried to do in these talks was if I could find something that the writer of Ecclesiastes was saying and I could find an echo in Jesus, I tried to take you there. And what, what was actually a kind of exciting thing for me in my research and doing that was that nine times out of ten I ended up in Matthew's Gospel. And that made me then do a bit of reading on what, what books are people writing on Matthew. And there's a lot of books in the last 10, 20 years on how Matthew is really indebted to wisdom in ancient Israel. So that's all kind of lovely. So what um, I think what we're used to saying about Christ is that he is our saviour who died on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for us. That's what, we, that's what we mainly say about Christ. And of course I wasn't really saying much about that at all. And so that could make us feel that I didn't, I wasn't saying much about Christ. So I wasn't exploring that Christ was Saviour, but I was exploring that Christ is Lord. Um, now, and so then, then that's an open question. Should every sermon be about that Christ is our Saviour, or is it legitimate to have a sermon that's about that Christ is our Lord? Now I've made it a choice that if I preach that Christ is Lord, I feel like I'm being true to the Bible. But I do have, I have Martin Luther in the back of my head saying the cross is our theology. And I'm thinking, oh, but I didn't preach much on the cross. Um, but the good thing is, nearly every song we sang was about the cross in some way. So I sort of think, well, um, actually when we met together, I'm only one little element here. And Ecclesiastes is one little element in a whole story that's about Christ is Lord and Christ is Saviour. So because I know that there's that whole context, 
I know that my individual contribution doesn't have to do absolutely everything. No, thank you, that's helpful. Um, uh, Can I say one more thing? Yeah, go for I it. I think there is a tradition of saying that the writer of Ecclesiastes is a humanist who's trying to find meaning from his work and his pleasure and his building and all of that. And if only he had known Christ, then he'd leave all that behind and then he'd find meaning. So there's a long tradition of reading the book like that. But I've, I've decided that I don't think that's the right take on Ecclesiastes. Mm. Yeah. And if I could just reaffirm what you've said there, I haven't studied in Sydney for four years. One of the great strengths and riches of the theology is the Christocentric model. But it can be reductionist in that um, somebody put it well that the plan of redemption is set on the canvas of creation to new creation. So if redemption theology becomes the end in itself, you actually have a truncated worldview because, you know, God is saving us in order to give us a place to eat and drink and laugh and play and talk. And, you know, and I've always found that really helpful that, as you're saying, Ecclesiastes is set on a bigger canvas. um, And you might not address redemption, but it's a bigger canvas of creation and um, yeah, yeah. that helps. Mm. Um, what advice do you have for a Christian single who wants to ask a young lady out? Now, I thought after Jeff Hay got married, we wouldn't have questions <laughs> like this anymore. So, you, Jeff's not here this weekend, unfortunately. But uh, there is obviously another Jeff in the room. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I- <clears throat> Um, if wisdom is born from experience, my, um, my experience is very slender here because I met Lisa when I was nine years old. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we needed hormones at 14 to sort of kick things along. But, um, Were you married at 16? Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, big, big break up at 21. Right. Ooh, wow. After, after Ma- 12 years. Married, wow. married at 22. Um, so we, had, we did a bit of drama. That was good. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not the man in the room really to ask here because it's kind of been a very smooth pathway for me in some ways. Um, yeah, I'll, how about I live with that? What, can I, what more can I share? Uh, have you any thoughts on, on relationships in the g- Generation X? You know, uh, uh, have you thought much of it? Oh, no. Or? No. no. Okay. <laughs> I, Okay, you ever ask that um, question? I guess you use your phone. <laughs> <laughs> you text. Oh, Lisa's oh, yes. Lisa's Lisa. Lisa. Comment. Lisa. You have single problems or married problems, but you don't have no problems. Okay. Yeah, what you get now is not what you're going to have in years to come. So that's why we've got to have the, 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 the something else. You know? But you can ask everything about is she the one? But if she's a believer um, and godly, Hmm. That's the best you can go for. I mean, there's wisdom in obviously having some things in common. But you don't know what's down the track. Hmm. You know, if you've got that covenant commitment, that is, yeah, that's what will get you through. Hmm. Not, yeah, a suitability or timing. Or, yeah. yeah, that's helpful. Lisa, would you, would you mind saying that through the <laughs> microphone? Would you? Just because people will listen to this. Oh, okay. Oh, right. Well, you're, you're uh, on your own. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I knew that. <laughs> uh, what Lisa's saying is um, we can be, we can 
think we've got to find the right girl, the most suitable girl, but um, if we find... I, I guess the notion is like, you know, many cultures have had arranged marriages for centuries. So uh, if, if there's somebody who's godly and, and there's some wisdom in that, yes, you've got some things in common and you, get, you, know, you can get on, then um, once you're married you build a covenant commitment to one, to one another and um, you're committed in sickness and in health for better or for worse because that person could be very different. They'll have a head injury or they'll... Um, you know, that person, or they'll go through major depression or something. You know, all kinds of things are going to change for the rest of your life. So it's not as though you've got to completely analyse the personality of somebody right now and get it exactly right. It's that you make a commitment and then you go on an adventure together in within that framework of commitment. And, oh, and then Lisa began by saying, uh, if you're single, don't sort of pine after marriage so much because you're your life is either going to have problems because of your marriage or problems because you're single. It's going to have problems. <laughs> <laughs> but enjoy the moment. But enjoy yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> um, Now, Kirk, you've been um, very open with us this weekend. Uh, you've shared um, a bit about your family and your life, and uh, you've mentioned uh, Jera, who is in intellectually impaired and autistic. And uh, you've also mentioned uh, a daughter that you had who died uh, at birth. Uh, um, there's a question here, is are you ever angry with God? Um, and I guess I want to sort of just unpack a bit of that. Mm. If, if you wouldn't mind just sharing your experience, maybe in regards to your daughter, and we can talk yeah. about uh, Jera in a moment. Yeah, so we called our daughter Jazz. Um, as Sophia, wisdom. Um, uh, I guess I, I, bec I became clinically depressed after she died. I think I was just holding it together looking after an intellectually impaired son. But I, um, it, it was kind of like, oh, God, that's too, you know, okay, I've got a disabled child. But now I've, uh, Jazz was born with anencephaly, so no brain. Um, it was very, very confronting to have to carry a child to full term for a pregnancy knowing that she has no brain and that as soon as you cut that cord she can't breathe. You know, it's awful. Um, so I did have that sense of, oh, okay, you know, one thing, one challenge is okay <laughs> or understandable but two's too much. So um, that, so I don't know, that I'm probably angry at God probably is right. I remember saying to a counsellor once, I don't really get angry and him having to say, well, I think that's your problem. I think you really do, um, but um, you've frozen your anger and it's become depression. Um, so do I get angry at God? I don't think that I do, but yes, deep down I do and did. Um, I think too, when, um, when Jared was having these uncontrolled seizures for several years, um, that all happened in the middle of Lisa and I were working together in Presbyterian parish ministry and we had four little churches and... Um, they, when we arrived in the parish, they were all dying. Um, but a couple of years on, one was growing, one was steady, and two were dying. Um, so we, we thought, wow, this is, you know, we're achieving something here. We, we're, we're gaining something. We've got statistics to show how good we are. Um, and then our son keeps having seizures, and we're sort of taking him to the hospital all the time, and there's no time to write sermons and visit people, and 
and we just resigned. We couldn't. We just could not maintain it. And I think that was a real crisis for me. That I'd I'd made my Christian ministry an arena in which I was going to gain something and be seen to be able to get the statistics on the board. Um, and then God sends me this son, who's an <coughs> incredible waste of resources. Basically, you know, I have to come home every night and I have to shower him and I have to dress him and sometimes we have to feed him. Um, and, you know, like, to, okay, an invitation to come and speak at this. Well, it's taken us months of, okay, we've had to write a social story for him. Mum and Dad are going on an aeroplane. You know, Grandma and Grandpa are coming. It will be fun. You know, we've had to get therapists to write social stories. We've had to get chemists to line up all these drugs and we've had to train Lisa's parents in all the drugs and what they all do and, what, and how they'll know when this drug hasn't worked. You know, months and months of it, highly inefficient. And I can say to God, well, you know, do you want me to have a preaching ministry or don't you? You know, and, you know, how, how, what about my career here or that kind of stuff? Um, and so in these Ecclesiastes sermons, I'm preaching it myself, for goodness sake. I'm saying, you know, it's just so joyful when Jerah plays the drums. It's just so joyful when Jerah likes his shower. It's just so joyful when he finally works out how to use a fork. You know, and it's inefficient and it's not impressive and it's no, you know, it's, it doesn't sort of gain anything in worldly terms, but it's kind of joyful and creational and human and real. And so, um, yeah, I feel like there's, I've, I've learned a lot about God along the way. And it was interesting that the way my lecture load worked out one year, I was doing a lot of work in Isaiah and a lot of work in Job. And I was writing a master's thesis on Isaiah and you know, that's turned into a commentary more, more or less. But um, it was as though in my intellect I was doing all this work on Isaiah but then I had to go home and just sort of care for a son or grieve a dead daughter. And so I'd stand up to lecture on Job and I'd think, hey, I, actually, I haven't read all the books on Job that I've read on Isaiah but I kind of know this stuff. And I thought, oh, well, there you go. Um, God's equipping me now to teach Job by giving me experiences of weakness and grief and pain and so on. Hmm. So that lament is a category that I know. Yeah. 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 And can you tell us a wee bit more about Jera and Manning, what age they are now, what they're at, what they do, what they enjoy? Yep. So Jera's 13. Um, he's got an obsession with bagpipes. So um, <laughs> which there was a bagpipe illustration. You might have... Um, so his favourite thing is to get on YouTube and to type in, he can't quite spell it, but bagpipes, we've got it stored, you know. Um, so he'll watch the same bagpipe performance over and over. Simon Fraser. Simon Fraser Band is his current favourite, over and over and over again. So when we see like a million hits, we know Gerard. Yeah. Like, he's, he's got about 900,000. Right. Um, so that's, he loves, play, he's very musical, he loves playing the drums and we, our church bought him a drum kit. And our current church is very loving and gracious and puts him on the music roster. He's part of the band and he, his timing's not perfect. I stand in the, behind him and do this. <laughs> um, but he's good. He, he does actually play the drums quite well. So, yeah, that's, they're kind of his loves. That would be him. Um, Manning is an 11-year-old. Um, he's, he's a troubled soul. He, he talks about murdering Jera. He talks about... Uh, he says that Cain and Abel's his favourite story in the Bible. <laughs> Quite seriously, like he is really, 
he is really beaten down by having a disabled brother. And, um, but he's a lovely, creative, musical, cricket playing, basketball playing, tennis playing, um, blonde haired 11 year old boy. Hmm. Oh, obsessed with, yeah, Wii and DS and PlayStation. Mm, mm. Yeah, so I think that's, we think, it's probably his escape, like he doesn't have a disabled brother in that world. If he, if he can just sort of go there with his gadgets, mm. then he, mm. he's kind of free of all, the, all of that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you shared with me about Manning's reaction before we came on the weekend. I asked, how does Manning cope <laughs> with, uh, you know, Jera and... Uh, I think, you know, when you first hear it, you sort of think it's slightly funny, but you, you were sharing that actually that is quite worrying at the minute for you. So yeah. I think it's something we can pray for sure. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, in that regard. It, just one more question. W what things, as a couple with um, a mentally impaired child, what things are helpful for people as mm -hmm. they try to help you and what yeah. things are actually unhelpful and you wish they wouldn't do? Yeah. Um, uh, early on it was like, oh, there's, it, it was sort of glib advice that this will be okay or, um, or yeah, he'll get better or, you know, or science can do so much. So sort of glib triumphalism is really no help to us at all. Um, but most Christians aren't guilty of that. Most Christians have been fantastic. Um, what, what is really helpful... And if you, if you have a family living with disability in your church, our advice to you would be um, offer things that are concrete and um, really clear. So if you say, let me know if there's any way you can help, well, I haven't got time to let you know if there's any way you can help. So that will come to nothing. Or, you know, I'm always here. That it's better for you to say, if I came around on Tuesdays and did the ironing, would that be a help? Or... Um, or, you know, like something really concrete. I'm, I'm free on Saturday mornings. What's the most helpful thing I could do if I committed every, the first Saturday morning of every month to you? You know, really concrete. Because then I can say, okay, first Saturday morning of every month, you could take Jared to tennis and I wouldn't have to stand on the court and move his body around so he knows where to stand. You could do that for an hour and I could relax. Um, yeah, so that's, I think that's the best advice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, fam when you have an autistic child, there's a 90% chance that your marriage will break up when you're sort of in kind of the world of Jera. And the neurologists say that to you early along and say, don't know how you're going to do it, good luck. Um, one paediatrician said, this is all too sad for me, I'm gonna, and you're nice people, I'm going to refer you to somebody else and I'm not going to see you again because you just make me too sad. <laughs> Thanks, you know, so don't do that. <laughs> don't say good luck and walk away. Um, so, uh, you know, hey, we've got a 90, there's a 90% chance that Lisa and I are going to get divorced given the family pressure. So Johnny's got a little holiday house for us in Port Stewart and we're going away without our children for three, four days in Port Stewart. That's huge. That is huge uh, contribution to our marriage. And, you know, our ministry of the word will co collapse if our marriage collapses. So, you know, that it's thinking in those categories too. Yeah. And just finally, is there anything in specific, uh, anything specific you would like prayer for for the coming weeks, months, year, as a family? Um, yep. 
um, so I think um, energy and stamina with parenting and for great wisdom. So we're struggling with Manning at the moment, as we've said. And also, Jared just started high school and really hasn't sort of worked very well. Um, but there's not that many options in terms of schooling. So pray for wisdom for that. And I don't know what services are like here, but as we think five, ten years down the track, as Jared grows to be a young adult, the services for him really just start to evaporate. And that means either he's going to live with us for the rest of our lives, or we have to work out where is he going to live. And there's, um, there's sort of ten-year waiting list in Australia for any government accommodation, and the standard of them isn't all that amazing. Um, so actually, I mean, some, someone was saying to me, you know, maybe God's calling you to something when you see a need and nobody else sees it. Um, so something that we're aware of is, hey, wouldn't it be great if, if there was a group of Christians who would live with Jera, who are younger than us, you know, who can see him through after we're dead, and can nurture him as a disciple of Jesus. That, so, I mean, that's almost too, too good a dream to dream. But why not? Let's dream that. And let's, so we've got that dream, actually, and a few parents have got that dream, and we're trying to sort of start to get together and think, where, can, where could this go? There, there is a movement called L'Arche that's doing this, but their theology is very fuzzy and Catholic and pluralistic and... So I think we can learn from them, but it's, we need to do it with a more evangelical theology. Mm. Mm. Okay, Kirk, thanks very much for taking the time and being willing especially to share things that are very close to your heart and painful at times. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Mm -hmm.